An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today at Outside In, our special guest is Fred Siegel. Simply put, if you want to understand, learn about, or even rationally criticize impact investing, Fran is the person to know in the United States. Fran is president of the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance. Fran helped incubate the alliance at the Ford Foundation, and the alliance is now chaired by Darren Walker, president of Ford. Fran is also executive director of the Tipping Point Fund, a donor collaborative in the field. She previously was Chief Investment Officer at Impact Assets, which includes the Giving Fund, now a $3 billion impact investing donor-advised fund. She served on the G7 Working Group on Asset Allocation, worked for PwC, and taught at the USC Business School, where her course was named the best graduate-level elective course at the school. Fran has an MBA from Harvard, but somehow she's managed to stay grounded and be a problem solver in the real world. Fred is smart, funny, realistic, high-powered, and as I said, the person to know if you want to know anything about impact investing. Welcome, Fred. Don, so great to be with you today. Okay, before we really get into it, let's get some definitions. This podcast attracts lots of financially sophisticated people, but the explosion of labels can be incredibly confusing. How do you define impact investing? How does it differ from ESG or taking into consideration environmental, social, and governance factors, socially responsible investing, and whatever else you want to differentiate it from? Yeah, so you're right. The, our field has suffered from a proliferation of names and titles. At the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, we define impact investing broadly, perhaps more broadly than most. So we look at investing across asset classes, geographies, and risk return profiles for positive and measurable social, economic, and environmental outcomes. So we really see it as a pairing of financial considerations and impact considerations. And as a result, we see ESG and impact investing and sustainable investing on a spectrum. Uh, so. ESG is one of many strategies on this spectrum that sits between purely philanthropic capital like grants and traditional investments that prioritize financial returns without regard for impact. So it's a little bit different than some define it. Uh, the Global Impact Investing Network, the GIN, describes impact investing as investing for positive and measurable impact alongside financial returns. And I would just say we've pitched a, a, a somewhat broader tent than not. What's your origin story? I mean, most kids don't grow up thinking they want to use finance to change the world. I mean, I know I was too busy spending 
my allowance on comic books and baseball cards. So what was the early Fred Siegel like? And how did you mature into being the person you are today? Yeah, so for what it's worth, um, my brother was like you, uh, spending his allowance um, as he as he received it. I, on the other hand, was a very diligent saver from the time I was very little. So I think part of this answer to this question is nature and some of its nurture. So by nature, I'm a kind of a diligent saver. I understood in some strange, abstract childhood way the time value of money. I remember um, saving most of my allowance because I was quote unquote saving from college for college before I really even knew what college was. I grew up in uh, a, a Jewish immigrant background, um, a working class background, a labor union background. So we grew up in Queens and Flushing, New York, in labor union housing. Uh, it was a development called Electchester, which was started in 1949 for electricians and their families to have affordable housing. So my grandfather on my mother's side, was a member of the local number three of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, which is now a part of AFL-CIO. Um, my great-grandfather, on my, um, also on my mother's side, helped unionize the Brooklyn Gas Company. And my great-aunts, after they immigrated from um, Romania at, uh, you know, in the early 1900s, helped to unionize the local milliner workers. In, they lived on Orchard Street, uh, worked near Greenwich Village. So they staged walkouts over work hours and wages. Uh, I attended, perhaps not surprisingly, very integrated public schools from elementary school. So when in high school, my parents moved to suburban New Jersey for better public access to better public schools, I expected the same very mixed racial uh, group of students as we had in Queens which wasn't the case. We moved to suburban New Jersey with football and uh, cheerleaders and nice, nice, nice clothes. And I just felt so out of place and particularly found the lack of diversity to be really strange and disconcerting given what I grew up um, as is, you know, m minority white, a highly, highly mixed student body. So I think all of this background shaped my commitment to economic justice, to gender justice, to racial justice. Okay. You started with your past. Um, you skipped one specific thing I want to ask you about, which is somewhere between Barnard and the Ford Foundation, you worked for a summer as a strategic planning associate at Mattel. So I have to ask, did you see the Barbie movie? Yes, I saw the Barbie movie the first day it opened, and then I saw it again, so I've seen it twice. Did you find <laughs> it empowering or a giant commercial or both? I really liked it. As a, a feminist, I thought that Greta Gerwig did. She had an undoable assignment to develop something that could pass muster with the general counsel of Mattel that would uh, engage audiences at, at different ages, children and adults. Um, and I thought that she did a pretty good job and did so with a lot of humor. Um, so I was excited to see it and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, what, one last thing about my time at Mattel. Um, I had, during the summer internship, I suggested to Mattel um, in 1997 that they create a RuPaul Barbie. 
um, because who looks more like Barbie than RuPaul? Um, so it's just fun to think about how many Barbies there are now, uh, both in terms of, um, you know, there's a Madam President Barbie, there's a RuPaul Barbie, uh, there are all kinds of, of Barbies and this idea that Greta Gerwig had that, um, that, uh, you know, we can all, we're, we're all Barbies, um, is, had, had some real appeal to me. Did you have a Barbie growing up? Absolutely not. My mother would not allow me to play with Barbies. Um, and, uh, I, in order to play with Barbies, I had to go over to my best friend's house and that's how I got my Barbie fixed. Okay, let's get back to the fact <laughs> Uh, you recently did a state of the field webinar with uh, David Bang from Impact Alpha, and you said your feeling was that impact investing has gone mainstream. What do you mean by that? So the the term impact investing was coined in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, so roughly fifteen years ago, and there's been incredible growth um, in the market over that time been driven, of course, by impact investors themselves, but also field builders and public catalytic public policies, regulations. The Global Impact Investing Network, the gym that I mentioned earlier, started sizing the market, I think, in 2013, and at that time globally sized it with their particular definition of about $46 billion. And last year, they placed the market at a trillion. So that's something like a 40% compound annual growth rate. So, you know, that is, I consider... Um, really strong growth. Put in perspective, though, I believe there's roughly um, $100 trillion globally assets under management. So $1 trillion is 1% of AUM. So still a relatively small market. If we scope an ESG, it's, I would say it's, it's, it's a strong multiple of that. I think that our field has operated in the relative margins for uh, some time, the margins to the capital markets, the margins of the income of private equity and private debt markets, and think that it's a combination of the understanding of the magnitude of the social, economic, environmental challenges we face globally, plus the opportunity um, and the risk mitigation that comes from the consideration of impact factors that has driven the growth um, and we see that only will happen more so. So we think it will enter the mainstream even more solidly, given that there's incredible wealth transfer coming over the next couple of decades with more women and young investors inheriting wealth and demanding opportunities to invest commensurate with their values and to create value. Um, I think the thing that I keep my eye on as we have this um, strong growth is how can we grow the field with impact integrity? Um, and so instilling in the markets impact transparency and accountability over time is something that we keep our eye on uh, and work on it on the, at the Impact Investing Alliance and the tipping point fund on impact investing. What do you think is the biggest fear criticism of impact investing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I know we'll talk about anti-ESG in a moment, but we separate the arguments for and against ESG um, into good faith arguments and bad faith arguments. So there are good faith arguments uh, from some calling for increased, increased transparency and accountability, especially in the ESG space. So I think that is a reasonable critique. I mean, if you get back to the, the impact 
challenges that we have globally. You know, by some estimates, we will need multi trillions of dollars to address the SDGs between now and 2030. So the question is, like, we 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 haven't done enough. Specifically, the ESG strategies alone will not solve and track these intractable problems like climate change. And I, I think that many of those uh, critiques are valid and we take them seriously. And the work that we do to increase uh, impact, uh, transparency, impact accountability with the goal of manifesting a more equitable economic system is that is how we think about trying to manifest change in the next evolution of the market. So that, I think those are the, that's the nucleus of the good faith arguments. And then, of course, there are bad faith arguments, which, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to talk about as well. Okay, since you teed yourself up, I will, I, <laughs> I will continue. Um, obviously, one of the big capital market issues of the past few years has been the anti-ESG campaign by primarily Republican elected officials and aligned think tanks and donors. And you have said that there was nothing spontaneous about the attacks on ESG. And you are one of the people deeply involved with the, let me coin the phrase, anti-anti-ESG response. So where do those issues stand now? And why don't you think this was a spontaneous criticism? So we, we talked a moment ago about the good faith criticisms. I I consider these to be the bad faith attacks on ESG. So the majority of the attacks that we have seen over the last, say, 18 months to two years, are we believe are politically motivated and they're funded by special interests, especially the fossil fuel industry. So the fossil fuel industry and its backers and its enablers have been pushing climate denialism for decades. So. I don't think it's a surprise that they would turn their attention to an investment concept that encourages market actors to consider climate risks. So um, would encourage listeners to read a bit about the main backers of the anti-ESG campaign to really understand what's happening in the U.S. and the potential for spillover to other markets. Like, for example, in London, we're hearing that there was... Um, a conference organized in London as an explicit attempt to spur a, a similar anti-ESG movement in the UK. So I will say that the anti-ESG movement in the United States has taken several forms. It's, it's definitely a communications-based attack. So we see the rhetoric in uh, the Republican presidential debates, the big Ramaswamy in particular, and uh, Ron DeSantis, among others, um, have talked about so-called woke capitalism. But it's not just kind of a rhetorical affair. Um, it is also public policy affair at the state and federal level. So in 2023 alone, uh, Republican lawmakers in 37 states introduced 165 pieces of legislation intended to restrict or block ESG investment activities. So these are things like prohibiting state pension fund fiduciaries, the public pension fund fiduciaries from taking even financially material impact factors into account. Um, it also blacklists some mainstream Wall Street firms, uh, making it impossible for municipalities to, for example, get access to affordable municipal bond underwriting uh, services. And so there's been some really good analysis from the Sunrise Project and others that talked about the financial loss to uh, retirement 
retirement savers and, and, and others, citizens of those city, the cities and, and states in doing so. Um, it's important to know that a lot of these 165 pieces of state legislation have not passed. They've gone a little bit too far. They have, some of them have been very clumsily worded. But we know that the folks at the American Legislative Exchange Council called ALEC are sharpening their pencils right now to help introduce new state legislation that will likely have a higher chance of passing. We're also seeing things heat up at the federal level. So this past July, there was something called the quote-unquote ESG July in-house financial services committee. There were, I believe, seven hearings on ESG organized by the, the House Republicans and the House Financial Services Committee. There have been congressional challenges of critical progress. Um, for example, there's a Congressional Review Act challenge to um, ERISA. Uh, which is the pension fund fiduciary regulatory um, agency. And it was seeking to roll back President Biden's rule that said that financially material impact factors could be taken into account by risk-regulated pension funds, largely but not exclusively privately, private pension funds, private company pension funds. If you had told me a couple of years ago, John, that the first presidential veto of the Biden administration would be to uphold ERISA-regulated pension fund fiduciary, fiduciary's ability to take impact financially material impact factors into account, I wouldn't have believed you. This is something that is so important to us, but to the American public probably seems extremely esoteric. So I do think, depending on what happens um, next year um, and the balance of how the balance of power changes among the parties, um, we think that there'll be more federal activity to prohibit uh, ESG practices. Um, and I don't know if you saw it, but oh, as we just, speak just, today, in okay. um, early November, Douglas Holtzikin, who is a longtime Republican economic advisor, in fact, he was the chief economic advisor for John McCain's campaign, came out with a, um, an article, an opinion article, that said that these state bills were insane, that they were anti-traditional Republican economics um and they were totally political so i think you're you're also seeing this um fight between the institutional wing of the republican party and sort of the mega wing which is just a um screw it we don't like them we don't like the elites we don't like what they're doing to us and without really considering any economic consequences i am going to bring a smile to your face by giving you a fantasy that you can remember um, whenever you are feeling oppressed by the world. If I could magically convene a meeting where Fran Siegel gets a private one hour with Jamie Dimon, CEO of JP Morgan, the largest bank in the United States, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, the largest asset manager in the world, and Maizono Matsutaka of Japan's GPIS, the largest pension fund in the world, what would you talk about? And what do you think you could accomplish in an hour with those three people? Yeah, this is a this is a very fun question. We have this trio. We have an hour, so I guess I would make three calls to action. One is a financial argument. The second is an impact argument, and a third is a kind of a field infrastructure call to action. 
So on, on the financial argument, and I think this would go over well theoretically with uh, Larry Fink and Masataka, is to embed system-level thinking across their work as leaders of major financial institutions, as universal asset owners, as you know, just market leaders. John, I don't have to, you literally wrote the book on this, so <laughs> I can say that. That for most large institutional investors, um, it's critical to consider systemic or beta risks like climate change, like inequality, and how they impact entire portfolios. So I'd like to quote you to you um, that uh, beta drives the vast majority of portfolio returns anywhere from 75 to 94 percent. And, the, you know, the financial services industrial complex is slavishly devoted to alpha um, and outperforming the benchmark, whereas beta drives a vast majority of portfolio returns, especially for universal asset owners. So I think there's a very compelling argument for the financial outcomes associated with systemic risk, system-level investing. And so that is um, uh, the first thing. It's kind of a financial argument, kind of, you know, leading with the financial argument. The second would be leading with the impact argument. So I would call on them to consider deeper cross-sectoral partnerships. We talk a lot at the Alliance about the importance of partnership between the public sector, the private sector, the nonprofit sector, and acknowledging that the magnitude of the challenges that we face, many of which pose systemic risks, require this cross-sectoral partnership, which sometimes is uncomfortable for private sector actors. But the Alliance and the Tipping Point Fund do so much work in public policy that we see the importance of it. We see government reaching out and wanting partnership with philanthropy, wanting partnership with investors. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, in order to achieve the SDGs by some estimates uh, uh, that will require annual funding of trillions of dollars, um, we see in the here in the United States this bold climate action by Congress, the Inflation Reduction Act, and we're seeing and we're encouraged to see that philanthropies and private sector leaders are already considering how they can ensure implementation is effective, is efficient, and is equitable. So I would say we need deeper collaboration across sectors to address these intractable systemic issues. And then finally, one of my Pet calls to action is that they fund the rails they ride on by supporting the underlying infrastructure of the field. So the crucial infrastructure uh, that allows, whether we call it sustainable investing, thematic investing, impact investing, ESG, the infrastructure, things like public policy, uh, the practice of impact data metrics and measurement, um, industry research, Though that critical infrastructure in our field is chronically underfunded, it is inconsistently funded with funding concentrated among just a handful of philanthropic donors. And as we see the mainstreaming of our practices, it's really important that we invest in this infrastructure so we can be sure that, the, that we scale with impact integrity. Most investors do not fund the rails they ride on. If we look at the anti-ESG movement, it is fueled and funded by special interests in a very coordinated fashion with very deep pockets. And that has just only further emphasized to me the funding gap that our, that our field faces. So those would be the three uh, topics I would cover with these three, three folks.
Can you elucidate a little more what you mean by funding the rails? Are you talking about data gathering? Are you talking about uh, voting platforms? What 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 are the rails that you're talking about? If you think about the the, the, the functions that allow um, financial markets to operate, we have metrics, measurement, reporting, region, rating agencies, verification, audit. Um, we need those functions as well to help fully to bring into full formation impact uh, transparency, impact accountability, and ultimately an impact economy. And then, of course, research, you know, the kind of work that, that you all do at Columbia and other places um, that help the, the field understand the state of play and how to advance our field and practice. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about and why? So, and I hope it doesn't seem like pandering, but I have been mildly obsessed with system level investing lately. I think I've read a lot about it. Um, oh, pander, please pander. Please go on. So I believe, and I, and I wrote about this, you know, early in my career, since the dawn of the industrial revolution, stakeholders like Consumers, workers, communities, the physical environment have borne the brunt of the negative externalities of companies that have been maximizing shareholder value without accounting to the limitations of our system. This is my belief. I also think it happens to be, to be the reality. Financial materiality, of course, changes over time. Um, in the 1970s, 90% of a company's enterprise value was driven by tangible assets, plant, property, and equipment. Today, that's flipped with 90% of a company's value tied to intangible assets, things like reputation, intellectual property, the investment in the workforce. And that has drastically changed the calculation of investor decision-making, the type of disclosures that uh, they need in order to make those uh, informed decisions. It's worth saying that every, we believe every investing investment has an impact, but it has been largely or exclusively opaque to stakeholders. And we need to make progress, as I mentioned earlier, toward impact transparency. As I think about the evolution of materiality, I, I would say the evolution of materiality is something that I am really excited about. I wasn't going to ask this, but I will now, since you are interested in the evolution of materiality, ask you um, the question that I think in the United States is going to create tension for the next 10 to 15 years around materiality. The Supreme Court definition of materiality um, is, and I quote, a fact that, quote, would have been viewed by the reasonable investor as having significantly altered the total mix of information made available, end quote. So in other words, the determinant of materiality, which people forget all the time, is not the company, but the investor. But the entity which makes the disclosures is the company. And there could be a gap between what a company thinks is material and what an investor thinks is material. A company that externalizes costs, um, for instance, a company creates huge amounts of greenhouse gas emissions or pollution and manages not to have any scrubbers, pollution controls, whatever, um, increases the cost of the rest of my companies in the portfolio and affects the systems. For the company, though, externalizing costs is economically rational. 
So there's this tension between what a company, which seeks to maximize enterprise value, thinks is material, and what a portfolio investor, which seeks to maximize portfolio value, thinks is material. How do you see that tension playing out in the real world? What do you think the direction of travel is on it? And does it vary by jurisdiction? This is a tough one. I mean, I think I you know, mentioned earlier that, and I agree with you, the companies, it's in the company's best interest to externalize negative externalities. I think ultimately we want to get to a place, and I talked earlier about uh, impact transparency. Ultimately, we want the government to set prices on externalities, penalties, taxes, incentives to, when I taught at USC, I talked about ex positive and negative externalities is like the phantom balance sheet. And that's only through pricing externalities, positive and negative, will allow the phantom balance sheets of externalities to come onto the actual balance sheet. Ultimately, we need to price, price externalities. And the question is to me, um, and, and I think that pricing them will penalize corporations in a way that will encourage them to act differently. In the meantime, um, I think that this concept that, that, that you all have been working on with your colleagues on um, system materiality could potentially be the bridge. And in fact, at the Tipping Point Fund, we uh, did a small grand cohort on system materiality as if, if, if double materiality and an integrated balance sheet is where we want to get to, which will, uh, would obviate some of the conflicts of interest that you, that, are, that you articulate in your question, and we're currently in a world where you know, financially material factors at best, system materiality is a financially driven way to bridge between financial materiality and what we call impact materiality, what the EO calls double materiality. And I think that, you know, the work that you have done, the, you know, Beyond Modern Portfolio, um, doing the book that you co-authored, I think is really, this work is really important. And the Shareholder Commons is doing great work in this regard. TIP is doing gr great work in this regard. Um, uh, the Task Force on Inequality-Related Disclosure, which is now merged with the Task Force on Socially-Related Disclosure, to start looking at inequality as a systemic risk. That is why, you know, you asked what I was thinking about these days. I've been thinking about system materiality as an important financially driven bridge from single materiality to impact materiality. Let's finish with some short Q&A. How do you relax? I don't relax. <laughs> I, I do. Uh, I love working in Central Park and Riverside Park, so I live on the Upper West Side. So I'm fortunate to have access to two amazing parks. I do yoga. When I lived in L.A., I used to relax by playing uh, beach volleyball, but that is just not a practical choice in New York City. So uh, I've been doing some, uh, uh, the, some of these other activities. What music do you listen to? My favorite type of music is funk. So like Curtis Mayfield, Sly and the Family Stone, Parliament. So someone, when I was in business school 25 years ago, told me I had the musical case. I'm a middle-aged black man. Um, and now 25 years hence, I think that would mean that I have a musical taste of a black grandpa and I'm totally okay with that. I love that music. What are you reading right now? So I just finished 
21st century investing, directing financial strategies to drive systems change by Bill Burkhart and Steve Lindbergh. In my spare time, I read like research reports and white papers on the field. We have, we fund so much at the Tipping Point Fund and we, it's just really important. So I would say for the most part, but I, re, I relax by doing all of the New York Times puzzles. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you go? I would love to visit Patagonia. So hiking in Patagonia would be one. Yeah. And I've also a lifelong goal is to see the Aurora Borealis in Norway or Iceland or Alaska. So those would be my exotic vacations and more achievable vacations would be hiking and meditating overlooking Lake Tahoe. Last question. If you could whisper one thing into everyone in the world's ears, what would you tell them? I would whisper to them that everything we do has an impact. Everything we invest in, everything we eat, we wear, we drive, everyone we vote for has a profound impact. And that it is uh, that you are empowered to demand impact transparency so you can make choices in your life that are consistent with your beliefs and your perspective on value. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In, John Lukumnik, with our special guest, Fran Siegel, um, head of the Tipping Point Fund and the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance. Fran, thanks so much. It's been great to visit with you today, John. Thank you. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukumnik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higasa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.